Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Today is April 1st, and so the calendar, my calendar at least, says April Fool's Day. I, I still have a paper calendar. I don't know. Do you have a paper calendar? Are you just exclusively now an electronic calendar person? Um, there's dog people and there's cat people. I'm a dog person. I'm, a, I'm also a paper calendar person. Today is April 1st, April Fool's Day, and so for many people, the verse of the day is Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But I would like for us as believers to claim 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 as our April Fool's text. Because while the world may see things uh, in terms of uh, fools, like, well, we as Christians may see the fools as those who believe in their hearts that there is no God, in no small part because God tells us that, Um but there's a lot of people in the world who think we're the fools. They think that you and I are the fools because we believe there is a God. In fact, we know his name. We know him personally and intimately. Uh, so my heart burns with the knowledge of the love of God revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know he died for my sins and yours on Calvary's cross. And so I'm claiming today as a day for fools like me. So it's April Fool's Day, and we are fools for Christ. We are going to, in this month, celebrate, acknowledge, and declare to others the good news of the gospel, that he is risen, he is risen indeed. And let me just say that two weeks from now, the world is going to need that good news in in ways it has not acknowledged its need for a Savior in a very long time. If even the most conservative of numbers are correct, tens of thousands of our fellow Americans and hundreds of thousands of people around the world are going to die in the next couple of weeks. And those who die in Christ will be raised from the dead. And those who die saying in their hearts, there is no God, well, for them, this life will have been all there ever is. This is a time for you and I to declare the good news of the gospel and to do so in ways that the world sees as utterly foolish. And so uh, this morning, let us claim as our April Fool's text, not just for this day, but for the, for the month of, of April, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Paul says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To those who have ears to hear, happy April Fool's Day. Next up, another fool for Christ. Hunter Baker and I will continue our conversation about all things at the intersection of politics and religion. We'll be right back. Hunter Baker from Union University is back with us today. You can find him on Twitter at Hunter Baker. Hunter, let me lead off with a, uh, just an acknowledgement of prayers today for your father-in-law um, and just our continued lifting you and your family up in this time. I appreciate that, Carmen. Thank you very much. He had a uh, successful heart procedure yesterday. Um, that doesn't solve all of his problems, but that 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 may give him some more time. Amen. So we'll just continue to be praying um, for you and your family. Uh, and so so many people dealing with so many challenges right now. And uh, so thank you, uh, as always, for joining us um, this morning. I have been intrigued by uh, not just, I mean, we're all experiencing the closure of our churches for a period of time. You know, we're all abiding by um, our our government's um, not just encouragement, but in some states' insistence that we not gather together. Um, we are all practicing social distancing. We all want to drive the numbers of of COVID nineteen um, occurrences down, so that our our healthcare systems will not be overwhelmed, and that the people who need to be served there will be services for them. Like we are all on the same page about this. Um, and so let's just let's talk a little bit about church closers. There's one church in Florida that apparently, you know, didn't didn't close, didn't abide by uh, what the government, local government was requesting. And so that pastor has been arrested. And then we also have Mayor D- Bill de Blasio in New York City, um, I think probably out of frustration more than anything else, um, you know, announcing that it was possible that some of these worship locations might be, quote, permanently closed, or at least the buildings permanently closed. Let's just reflect uh, on what's going on in our culture. Yeah, I I think that almost every Christian probably feels some ambivalence uh, over the fact that we are not meeting. Um, you know, we are we're doing we're doing the online thing. I, I I'm trying to figure out what this would look like if we didn't have the <clears throat> the access to technology that we have right now. Um, but, but you know, my family sits down on the sofa on Sunday morning, uh, turns on a laptop, and uh, and then you know we try to get my teenage son to get the laptop to mirror on the television uh, to make it better for watching. And you know, it's uh, I, I I'll say that that our pastors have done an amazing job, but it's not the same. Uh, it's very far from being the same, and I'm I'm not surprised. Uh, if there are some people who feel like, hey, we're not doing the thing we're supposed to do, we're not we're not gathering the way we're supposed to, and 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 probably some folks would like to gather in spite of the virus. So I, you know, I I don't uh, I don't really put huge fault on those people who want to continue to gather, uh, but but at the same time. Uh, 
uh, it's easy to understand secular officials who become upset uh, over recalcitrance in the church because it's not as though uh, we're being asked to do something that other people are not. We have shut down almost everything uh, in society right now. And so uh, the, the church is, is having to bear part of the same burden that everyone else is being asked to bear. So let's talk um, about this specific case in Florida, if we could, for just a moment. Um, this is a fairly high-profile uh, pastor, at least in terms of people who pay attention to what's happening in national politics. Uh, Rodney Howard Brown was actually one of the people um, in in the White House in a ceremony in 2017 laying hands on President Trump and praying for him. Um I think that there's a desire to be provocative by mm. some people that has nothing to do with whether or not we are gathering together as God's people in a way that is faithful to God. I think that there are some provocateurs who are simply using this as a, as a way of, um, of platforming themselves. That is um, contrary to what I think is the spirit of Christ. Yeah, that that could certainly be the case. Um, uh, obviously, we don't we don't know what's in people's hearts. Uh, an, another thing that could be going on is that I know that a lot of people deeply resent the impact uh, that the that sort of the shutdown of everything is having on people's lives. Uh, we we were enjoying basically the the best economy. Uh, that Americans have probably ever had or close to it. And we went right from that to uh, millions of people being thrown out of work. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of people have had a a feeling that, you know, there's some sort of a giant conspiracy at work. Uh, this is an attempt to derail Donald Trump, you know, whatever, whatever that looks like. Uh, and so they they want to kind of send some kind of message that they don't believe this thing uh, or that they think the government is doing something nefarious. And so it could be the case. There could be some folks who are who are playing into that, feeding that narrative. Uh, but but if so, they're not doing themselves or the church any favors. This is a great opportunity for Christians um, to be people who are serving our neighbors in tangible ways. It's also a great opportunity for us to be uh, prayerful and gathering together in ways that are um, that not only protect ourselves, but protect the communities in which we live. This is actually a really good opportunity to love our neighbors um, and to do so sacrificially. And sometimes that means we sacrifice the meeting together in order that we can continue to preserve our own health and protect others um, from uh, from becoming sick. All right, Hunter Baker and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You can find him online at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker, you can find him at Union University. You can also find him at Hunter Baker. Um, Hunter, let's talk about the religious liberty angle of all of this. We're certainly, uh, you know, we're certainly aware of our constitutional guarantees in terms of the exercise, the free exercise of religion and the freedom of assembly. Talk about the intersection of those 
values, um, those constitutional um, guarantees versus sort of this moment in time in the common good? Sure. Well, what's going on when a lot of people, when you when you hear things like that, churches are uh, are either being asked not to meet or are flat out ordered not to meet. A lot of people would be uh, kind of triggered to say, well, what about the First Amendment uh, and the free exercise of, of religion? Uh, or for that matter, I mean, we could even think of uh, guarantees such as the right to peaceably assemble. Even even that is disrupted right now. Uh, and so I think a lot of people would be asking, can the government even do this, right? Uh, can the government actually stop people from uh, exercising a fundamental guarantee in the Constitution? And what I would come back to is – is that uh, is that I have studied the question of religious liberty almost my entire uh, professional life, and again and again, what you see is that the government is supposed to protect that, and there are some things the government absolutely cannot do, uh, such as it cannot force us to pay a tithe to a church to which we don't belong. It cannot force us to belong to a church. It cannot force the clergy to act as uh, sort of bureaucrats for the state. You know, there are all kinds of questions like that. But when it comes to uh, something like a public health crisis uh, or anything of that nature where the government has a truly compelling interest and, and what's going on right now is about as compelling as it gets, then typically uh, the church will be asked to act as everyone else has to act. And that's that's what's going on right now. Um I have to say, I think that the people who would struggle the most with it would be Catholics uh, who put such a a, a great emphasis uh, on attending mass and um, receiving the absolution and, and things of that nature. Yeah, you're exactly right. My my sister lives in a um, in a community that is largely Roman Catholic, um, and she was meeting with a client. This now goes back several weeks when when these orders were just beginning to um, emerge. <clears throat> and she, she had people in her office. I mean, she's a financial planner, but they were weeping because every day during Lent, their entire married life, every single day, you know, they have gone um, and, and received mass. Like that's been something they have done as a rhythm, a regular rhythm of their spiritual and married life. And that was utterly disrupted in a way that I think they found surprising um, it was uh, certainly illuminating to her to recognize um, they did not understand at all that grace grace is available um, all the time, everywhere, that God is present all the time, everywhere, um, and that you have free access to him. You do not have to, you know, you do not have to do this act every single day in order to access God's grace. But how, you know, how you enter into that conversation with a person who is convinced of that truth, right, that, that they have to do this thing in order to get this grace, in order to be able to, on Easter Sunday, celebrate the resurrection of Christ. I mean, just saying it's, a, um, it's an interesting time to be uh, a Protestant Christian with the words of grace and in a culture where there are people who believe that there are particular things that we have to do to get God's grace. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, and let me just say, but see, so what you've just talked about with with Catholics, uh, 
very, very powerful justification um, to protect that right to get together. Uh, but again, the nature of the public health crisis is such uh, that this is where the state is at its strongest, uh, where, where, where it is necessary to protect the safety of the people. The state has the strongest hand. Um, now, let me say this also. Uh, when people feel suspicious of this, I understand because you could easily imagine a government that would cynically use a claim of safety uh, in fact, in the French Revolution, the <laughs> the government that was very dangerous, you know, referred to itself as the the, the public safety committee. Committee that was probably the folks who were beheading people. Um, but in this case, I think we can all see that the government is acting with integrity uh, and and is trying its best to protect people through these kinds of orders. Yeah, I think there's no question that, you know, the government has an interest in seeking to, you know, protect everyone and uh and and all of us are participating as best we can in um in being sure that we not only keep ourselves uh safe but others while we continue to follow um right the 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 call and the command of the great commission. There's so many ways right now to be reaching out to our neighbors and others with the gospel. I feel like Hunter Time is really ripe for the sharing of the gospel, um, and so in this uh, in this month of April, I'm going to just focus on the foolishness of the cross. Um, wondering if you just have a gospel message for our listeners this morning. I mean, the big thing that I think about is that there are people in distress. Uh, mm-hmm. We we need to be thinking especially about those people who are not protected by. Uh, sort of a salaried position. Uh, you know, uh, many of us are insulated or at least insulated for a time uh, from what's going on. And so part of part of what's important about the church is that this is a place where we know each other, we know each other's lives, and we know what people need. And so, uh, you know, even even as I am talking to you, I'm suddenly feeling this conviction. My church is uh, gathering a fund to help people in the church who are thrown out of work um, by this by this crisis, and uh, loving your neighbor means stepping forward and trying to help folks in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good time to remind people about um, the guest we've had on on a regular uh, regular rhythm. Um, I'm thinking about Rip Medical Debt. If you're looking for a very very tangible way. To um, you know, to help your neighbors, um, eliminating medical debt might be a part of that. You can always check out Rip Medical Debt. If your local church is not uh, engaged in um, in reaching out to to your neighbors in your community in particular ways, um, there are others who are doing that. And so, let us be availing ourselves of what the larger body of Christ is engaged in um, in our country and around the world. All right, Hunter, we got to end it right there. Thank you so much, my brother. You guys can find Hunter online at Hunter Baker. We'll be right back. Okay. So the seamless life, um, what, what would it look like to get beyond this fragmented sense of reality and actually begin to see all we are and all we do, literally everything, as significant to God and and significant to what God is doing in the world. So The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work by Stephen Garber. 
I actually recorded this conversation a number of weeks ago, so it does not make reference to um, the current reality that we find ourselves in. But the seamless life is a life we want to be living in every moment in time. And so enjoy my conversation with Stephen Garber about the seamless life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so this coming Saturday, April the 4th, from 9 to 10 a.m. Central, I am co-hosting a live call-in show with my colleagues Susie Larson and Bill Arnold. We want you to call us and share testimonies of God's goodness, faithfulness, and power. We also want you to share your prayer concerns. We'll pray together. It's a lead-up to Faith Radio's Spring Share, which is going to be held the week after Easter. And we want to exercise, exercise that sharing muscle by sharing both the joys and the burdens of this season with one another. So go ahead and set the alert on your phone. Save the number, 877-933-2484. For Saturday, April 4th, 9 to 10 a.m. Central, call me along with Susie Larson and Bill Arnold for an hour of mutual encouragement, sharing together in God's goodness, mercy, and grace. I look forward to talking with you then. Next up, Stephen Garber and The Seamless Life. Think about the last time you opened your son's or daughter's report card. Do you remember how you responded to their academic performance? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whether you saw straight A's, C's, D's, or F's, you had a choice in that moment about how to value your teen. See, grades are important, but we can't forget that marks don't determine a child's value. And while it's important to do well, it shouldn't overshadow our relationship. My challenge to you is to look at the next report card, take a deep breath, then encourage your child. Help them work hard at school, but be sure that they know you love them no matter what, whether A's or F's or anything in between. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Again, ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Welcome to uh, this this portion of Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now is um, is Stephen Garber, and this is a delightful opportunity for us to talk about life and love and learning and worship and work. The book is called The Seamless Life. Stephen, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning to you, Carmen. So one of the things that I uh, maybe just most enjoy about the book is that it's a delightful surprise. Um, many of the books that come across uh, come across my desk um, are not nearly this brief, do not include um, beautiful photographs, um, nor do they sort of take you deeper and deeper and deeper into a conversation without being um, particularly like having like an instructional approach. So talk with us about the book and the approach you took in writing it, because it's really it's really quite different. Well, thank you, Carmen, for even the conversation today. Um, so it's a different kind of book for me to write, because I've written other books with, with longer arguments and, and might be more complex storylines to them. But um, I've lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time, and the last three years here in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, but watching the world from 
Washington, D.C.'s uh, location, uh, I found myself, you know, day by day, week after week, and even year after year, I suppose, trying to make sense of what, where I was and who I was living with and the issues of the, of the city of the day and the world. And, and uh, for many of those years, I was involved with a group called the Washington Institute for Faith, Location, and Culture. And in the most simple terms, its uh, reason for being was that we thought that wherever you were in the world and whoever you are in the world, that faith shapes location, which shapes culture. Um, so whether you are a Hindu or a, a, a materialist, uh, whether you are a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, uh, you pick your religious convictions. But what you believe about life in the world shapes the way that you live in the world. And that has consequences for life in the world for all of us. That's really the, the argument we made. And so the book really is a it goes out of the years of that work especially and and just making sense of what I was taking part in and who I was meeting and the conversations I was having. And uh several years ago the Washington Press and I were talking about what I might do next and the uh, idea for a book of of shorter reflections with photos I had taken was appealing to them and they were interested in and so we spent a few years giving birth to this excuse me, this new idea of a different kind of book for them to do and for me to do because their books are not typically ones with photos in them and you know, I've not done that before but uh, so it is in its own way as a subtitle argues a tapestry of love and learning worship and work so there's everything in here from you know, like mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys to a reflection on you too, to um, one of my uh, family's favorite movies, which is um, Inside Out. And so I just, uh, it's delightful. It's a delightful, um, well, I would call it a romp, except it's not. It is, it is drawing us more deeply into a conversation about who we are and what we do and how those are intimately connected realities to sort of a greater reality, and that is this concept of a seamless life. So introduce the concept of a seamless life. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, one of the essays in the book is called A Disposition to Dualism, and it's a remembering of a breakfast in Birmingham, Alabama a few years ago. I was asked to speak to the first ever prayer breakfast out of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is tragically remembered for a setting in which the little girls were killed by a bombing in the civil rights era of American political history in the 1960s. And uh, I was asked to speak on what would the recovery and vocation mean for our city uh, here in Birmingham. And it was several hundred people gathered in this church building and kind of an icon in some ways for civil rights you know, movement in America. And the pastor had said to, to me, um, I, I want to actually have the things of the gospel remembered again at, vitally at the center of our church's life. And so I was eager to take part in this prayer breakfast for the city, but this idea of what would a recovery of vocation mean for our city was at the heart of what, what we're doing that day. And uh, I've told a longer story in the book with this essay that... Um, we sang Amazing Grace at the end of the whole affair, which is a song, of course, we all could sing. Um, but I thought of the irony of all that, because John Newton, who was a hero to all of us, and for different reasons, 
um, maybe best known more recently for Devin and the Long family friend of Wilberforce and his family. Uh, and Wilberforce going to him and asking, should you leave politics to become religious now? And Newton saying, no, no, stay in politics, work for the abolition of slavery, which Wilberforce did, of course. And we have that story that's known to many of us. Um, it'd be a nicer story if we could say, well, Newton um, you know, comes to faith on board a slave trading ship himself, and he's the captain of it, and you know, repents of his, you know, at the errors of his life and the things he'd been doing with his life and he writes Amazing Grace and talks to Wilberforce and the world's different and he dies and now we sing a song. That'd be a nicer story to tell, but the harder story is that he actually kept slave trading for several years after his coming to faith and would literally have Bible studies on the top deck of the ships while the holds were full of hundreds and hundreds of, you know, chained slaves on their way to the, you know, to the slave markets of the new world. And didn't see any connection between his new faith and what he would do with his life, you know, in terms of the work of his life. Um, and I said, you know, it's be possible to, you know, disparage him, but I said, I can't do that because I know that, like him, I too am disposed to dualism, uh, to fragmenting, to compartmentalizing what I believe and how I live. And my argument was that we all are that way, actually. We are people who are like, like that, who they say, well, yes, I believe this to be true, but, you know, in the way I live my life, it just doesn't work out that way. That, there's no coherent connection. There's no sense of seamlessness between what I say matters to me and how I live my life. So in all of these things, uh, Carmen, it's the argument that this idea of seamless or coherence actually is the heart of what a, a good life is and a godly life is. That, um, um, there's a beautiful, rich Hebrew word called avodah, and it's literally and honestly translated in the Hebrew scriptures as both as as worship, as work, and as service. Um, so in the early early chapters of Genesis, it is you know, and you shall work you know these six days. The word is avodah. Um, it also comes to us in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and other places as worship and as, as service as well. And so somehow in the world that God intends us to to live in, the way He wants us to live. I would argue, is a sense of avodah about all of life, where there's a, a coherence across the whole of life, there's a seamlessness across the whole of life. We're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Garber in just a moment. The book is The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Stephen Garber. He is a professor of marketplace theology and the director of the program in leadership, theology, and society at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, spent many years teaching in um, in another environment, and that would be Washington, D.C. He's written several books, the latest of which is The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. Stephen, I think that it might be helpful to take a step back and define the word vocation. It's not just the job I go to every day, right? Right. It's not. Um, <clears throat> sometimes when we're trying to make sense of these ideas, we offer two words, vocation and calling. And I use them both, and they're both very good words. One comes out of the Greek language, one comes out of the, out of the Latin, out of Latin for us. Uh, 
but they mean the very same thing, actually. Um, and if you think of the word calling, the word calling assumes a caller, doesn't it? Um, you don't get a calling and have a calling unless somebody's calling. You know, vocation is the same idea, but it's a different root. Uh, we speak about vocal cords, and if you put vocal cords in relation to vocation, you realize that it too is the idea that somehow I'm being called into something by someone. Um, so the very words themselves are assuming that we live in a, a universe where we are able to respond to someone speaking to us. And so the word vocation, in my mind, is a deep word. It's a rich word. It's a complex word. Because it has to cover the whole of one's life, actually. Um, it, is, it is, first of all, primarily, it is my own you know, responsiveness to God himself. Um, it's looking my life before the face of God. That's fundamentally and principally what uh, my calling is. But when you begin to tease that out into all of who I am, and you realize that I'm called to the before the face of God in the whole of my life. So it involves my being a husband and a father and a friend and a neighbor and a citizen. But it also involves the work of my life, too. So that vocation and work or vocation and occupation are never the very same words. I would say that our occupations grow out of our vocation, but they're not the same words, not the same ideas. And it's critical to distinguish them, I would say. If I'm going to authentically live my life before the face of God in the whole of my life, um, then I'm not going to be able to divide my life up into parts and pieces and um, address certain parts of it and certain people in one way and then turn at a different time and place because I'm wearing, you know, sort of the culture's different hat in that moment and uh, approach people or conversations or decisions um, in another way. What we're talking about here is really a fully integrated life. We're talking about the kind of seamless life that, uh, you know, that I think we would all point to Jesus and say, clearly, that's the kind of life he lived. I, I agree completely with you about that. And I think that, you know, the, the invitation, of course, of the, of the Gospels and the script, biblical teaching is to imitate Christ, you know, to, to see the world, hear the world, and feel the world like Christ himself does. To just uh, see, you know, that everything matters to God. Um, and that gives, in some ways, dignity and purpose to, to all parts of, of who I am and why I am and what I do with my life. So I love, um, I love the blanket, Grandfather Gilchrist's blanket. Um, I'm hoping that you'll just, just tell us that story because the book unfolds like a tapestry and, um, or unfolds like a blanket. And I think it's helpful for people uh, to set that image in their minds. Well, thank you, Carmen. Uh, <clears throat> it's a blanket that I much love. It's a prized blanket to me, a prized possession in my life. Um, I was born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and my first summers were spent with my grandparents on a little ranch they had in the southwestern part of Colorado between Durango and Cortez. And my grandfather had cows, and I loved that life and the world that he loved me to be part of. Um, one day, a Navajo Indian somehow came to our the little place that we lived and that my grandparents lived and had a need for a cow, and somehow I wasn't part of the deal, but my grandfather traded a Navajo blanket for a cow, and uh, my grandfather used it for his saddle horse for many years, and um, later when my grandfather died, I was my grandson given the saddle blanket, and you know, I think I got it all cleaned, you know, 
all the horse hairs out and the smells out of it. And a bit of like regular working working saddle blankets, really, not a fancy thing at all. Um, but I've had it, you know, near, near to me in my life for years and years. And um, I would say that, you know, in my growing up years, my grandfather was really a person who first began to have to understand what vocation in the world is supposed to be about. And uh, on the one hand, being a man who would literally lead us as a family on our knees, praying night by night for, for God and his work in the world and our part in it, but also going off into the world with his cattle and um, his work and, and his work day by day and helping me to sit in this Benedictine, St. Benedict idea of ora e labora, of work and prayer together was really a possibility. And as a boy, I had no idea in the ways to make sense of that. I think as I began to grow up into my own and being a man in the world, I began to realize that this idea that goes back for centuries and centuries, that the call of God is to be people who both work and pray at the same time, who pray and work at the same time, this ora e labora. My grandfather had shown me that. And so when I was thinking about, you know, this book and, you know, what it might be and how we would describe it and work at it, my grandfather's blanket seemed to me to be a very good way to begin the book. Because when you look at the blanket itself very literally, very closely, it's very difficult to see the seams uh, in the blanket. Uh, they're, you know, microscopically you can see them back there. But you imagine you know, in some very, you know, faraway place from where most of us live, you know, in a Navajo, you know, life and world, um, the, the ability, the skill, the insight, the craft of a, probably a Navajo man, a woman, who were working away at the sh- sheep and goats of their lives and taking what they needed to, you know, make wool and, you know, beautifully imagine a, a blanket and put it together. And, you know, so it seemed to me to visually and artfully capture uh, a seamless vision of what uh, our life might be. So that's why the book begins there. Well, I love it. I love that uh, on the page before page one, we get to see a picture of the blanket, and uh, I appreciate that. The book is The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. The author is Stephen Garber. Um, Stephen, I can tell you that um, the reaction of our listeners in part is going to be, I, I want what he has because I can tell by the tenor and tempo of his voice that he is not a man of rush and hurry. And so um, I just I wanted to acknowledge that and um, and be sure that, you know, I say that before you just to thank you not only for the conversation and the book, but for the tenor and the tempo and even the volume of your voice. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Well, it's a gift to talk with you, Carmen. I wish it was possible actually to see you and talk more with you about many things. It's a gift to be with you this morning. Thank you very much. It is. Thank you for the gift of your time. That is Stephen Garber. The book is The Seamless Life. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, so Stephen Garber just... Um, doesn't he make your heart rate go down? Like, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, very calming influence. So lots of us are spending a lot of time at home these days. Um, I'm assuming that you know that you can listen to Faith Radio on any connected device. 
um, because our devices are now smart, right? So you can enable the Faith Radio skill on your Amazon Echo Dot or um, something called your show smart device on Alexa. I don't know. Alexa. All right. So you can just say, Alexa, enable Faith Radio. And then you can say, Alexa, listen to Mornings with Carmen. And I'll pop on, apparently. Like, that's kind of cool. So you want to um, ask uh, ask your enabled devices, your smart devices, um, your connected devices to play Faith Radio. Um, you can use your Google Home by saying, hey, Google, play Faith Radio. Uh, and it will play whatever is streaming in the moment. You can also just go to MyFaithRadio.com and listen live. That's also a great place to get the podcast like of today's show. If you wanted to share today's show with someone else, you've heard something today that you thought, wow, that would really be an encouragement to Bob or that would be a real encouragement to Linda. Um, you can go uh, and you can go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can get the link for the podcast from today's show and you can share it with somebody else. You can text it to them. You can email it. There's all kinds of ways for you to help other people get connected to the positive programming that we're offering right here, right now, every day, hour in and hour out. Uh, hour in and hour out? I don't know. Uh, people need uh, this encouraging word today, so we want you to help us share it with others. All right. Thanks for being here in the first hour of Mornings with Carmen. We've got an entire second hour coming up next. I'm going to start in Romans 8. We're going to talk with Bill English about all of your financial questions. Thank you for all of those of you who have sent those in. And then I'm going to talk with Jasmine Holmes, author of Mother to Son. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.